Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Maybe you can identify with uh, uh, some of all of that. We wanted to take just a moment uh, on a Mother's Day and just say uh, thank you to our moms. And so if you're a, a mom in the room right now, we'd love to have you stand for just a moment. We want to recognize all of our moms. Moms, please join me standing, if you would, all over the room. Let's say thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you very much. Let you be seated. And uh, hope families will treat you very well today. And there are many of us that need to say not only thank you, but we're sorry, don't we? Uh, we are, are blessed uh, for uh, sure, so many of us, uh, and the heritage uh, we have from our moms. Uh, given the fact that it's Mother's Day, we've been in a series of messages uh, looking at uh, First Peter, uh, talking about living God's way. It, it, it kind of seemed appropriate. Uh, we were uh, timing it, uh, and it ended up that we're right at chapter 3, where uh, Peter is writing about uh, living God's way at home, and what does that that look like, particularly the, the husband and wife relationship. And maybe to set that up, let me just tell you about uh, four-year-old Susie. Susie was off at her preschool, and she heard, at least for the first time, that she kind of heard it and conceived it, recognized it, the story of Snow White. Do you remember this, uh, this Disney classic, right? And she was just enthralled with all the imagery and all the thoughts. And so she comes home and she's, she's telling her mom all about it. She says, oh, this, this, this happened, this happened, this happened. And she gets this climactic moment. Prince Charming comes on his white horse and he kisses her and wakes her up. And, oh, it was so great. And then, mommy, mommy, do you know what happened next? And of course, mommy's heard the story. She said, well, yes, they lived happily ever after. Little Susie got a frown on her face said, no, mommy, then they got married. <laughs> well, Susie maybe recognized something at four years old that getting married and living happily ever after aren't necessarily always the same thing, right? Uh, and sometimes the, there's a gap uh, along the way. Well, the reality of family is it was God's idea. It was God's idea from the beginning. And God knows more about how to do family than we'll ever know. And so as we think about uh, this time of the year and this section of God's Word beginning in the, the first seven verses of chapter 3, uh, we just want to look at, at what does it look like to live God's way at home, particularly in the marriage relationship. And let me just go ahead and put the, the central premise out front. And it's simply this, a family will never, ever, ever be what God has called it to be, apart from the individual members being what God has called them to be. Let me say it again because it's worth kind of chewing on. A family, whatever your family looks like, whatever season it's in, a family will never be what God has called it to be, apart from the individual members being what God has called them to be. And as we look at this passage, there's always a tendency when you come to passages like these to think about everybody else. This is what somebody else needs to hear. This is, I wish they would do more of this if they were just more like that. And there's a very important biblical principle that I, I want to lift up to you this morning. And that is simply this, begin with yourself. Begin with yourself. Don't say, God, I sure hope you're speaking to them, but God, speak to me. 
Jesus, when he, when he was teaching, kind of highlighted this principle in, in Matthew 7. He said, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The principle is simple. It's not that we don't ever help somebody else to deal with the speck in their own eye. It's just you don't start there. You start with your own self, your own stuff, and what we discover is that most of the time, uh, in, in uh, using hyperbole there, we kind of got a proverbial log sticking out of our eye. So begin with yourself. And here's a great question if you're married, a great question to ask. What is it like being married to me? What is it like being married to me? Now, let me go ahead and answer that a little bit for you. It's not as wonderful as you think, okay? <laughs> not as wonderful probably as you think, right? In fact, is if you're really brave, you might find a time to ask your spouse that. That could be interesting, huh? What is it like to be married to me? What is it kind of like to be on the other side of me? Now, we're going to look at these passages here in just a moment, and I realize that these passages, uh, this uh, Ephesians and some others, sometimes are are like landmines walking into, and it's like, you know, do I really want to do this passage on Mother's Day? Uh, But yes, because rightly understood and rightly applied, these are powerful, powerful passages about the family. But in order to understand it well, I want to make sure we have the right foundation in place. The foundation is so essential. And the foundation is simply this, Ephesians 5, in a kind of a parallel passage where Paul is writing on some of these same themes. Ephesians 5 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The necessary foundation is relationships work best inside and outside the family when there is mutual submission. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That'll look different for different people, but the principle is mutual submission. Let me put it this way. Every obedient, spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. If I am not submitting, I am not walking in obedience to Christ. I am certainly not filled with the Spirit of Christ. Every obedient, Spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. So what does it mean when the Bible, the New Testament, talks about submit? Well, submit was originally a military term, meaning to arrange or to rank under. It was about kind of the, the arrangement. It was about a functionality along the way. When we, we come to the teaching about, about submitting to one another, submission has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. It has to do with order and function among equals. That, that it, within an organization, within a family, there are certain roles that have to be filled, not because this person is a, a more of more worth uh, or greater value or one's inferior, one's superior. It's just there has to be this order. It has to work together in order to function at its best. In Galatians, Paul said there is neither Jew nor Greek. 
there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is absolutely level at the foot of the cross. And so we, we come to that to recognize that when we talk about some of these principles, we're not saying here's superior, here's inferior. No, we're talking about this equality and this functioning in this area of mutual submission one to another. Now, one of the reasons why this becomes challenging is because it's been so misused and abused. And we'll talk about some of the distortions of sin here in just a moment with that. But in our current culture, there's a whole lot of conversation, and it's needed conversation about how men and women relate to each other, right? And we have referenced in the uh, worship folder uh, a blog post by the Bible teacher Beth Moore, and I just really want to lift that up to you. I think it would be well worth your time to spend a few moments reading it, Uh, particularly guys. I think it would be something well worth reading along the way uh, because we we need to, to understand that some folks have taken some of these principles and they have misapplied them in a lot of situations. And, and, and particularly some men have acted in some very unchristlike ways. Let me just read you a little bit of her blog, maybe to, to set part of this foundation. I'm asking for your increased awareness of some of the skewed attitudes that many of your sisters encounter. Many churches quick to teach submission are often slow to point out that women also among, were also among the followers of Christ, Luke 8, and that the first recorded word out of his resurrected mouth was woman, John twenty fifteen, and that the same woman was the first evangelist. Many churches wholly devoted to teaching the household codes are slow to also point out the numerous women with whom the apostle Paul served for whom he possessed obvious esteem. We are fully capable of grappling with the tension the two spectrums create, and we must if we're truly devoted to the whole counsel of God's Word. Finally, I'm asking that you would simply have no tolerance for misogyny and the dismissiveness toward women in your spheres of influence. I'm asking that your deliberate and clearly conveyed influence toward the imitation of Christ in His attitude and actions toward women. And that ought to be true for every follower of Jesus Christ, whether that's in context of the family, whether that's in the church, whether that's in a social setting, whether that's in the workplace, that we ought to bring the attitude and the actions of Jesus Christ toward one another. And it begins by understanding that call toward mutual submission. And so let me say it again, every obedient, spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. It will look differently in different roles, in different situations, but every one of us is called to that principle of mutual submission. So with that in mind, I want to just read, and let me just read the first seven verses of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll invite you to follow along, and then we'll unpack this in just a moment. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word 
by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the, uh, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children, if you do good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, let me uh, just put those two terms out there that, that maybe you have heard and maybe misunderstood, but it's, it's part of understanding God's uh, plan for the family. Headship. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility, primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership protection, and provision in the home. It is a calling of God. It is characterized by Christ-like servant leadership. He is to take the primary responsibility, not the sole responsibility, but the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Doesn't mean that he even makes the most money. In many cases, that's not true. It's not talking about that. It's talking about, about giving Christ-like servant leadership, being the lead, taking the primary responsibility for bringing that to the home. In the context of the home environment, Peter's passage should not be understood that every woman submits to every man in every situation. That is absolutely not what he's saying. He's sp- saying specifically in a husband-wife relationship, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. That'll look a little different for, for every couple because it's based on their gifts and what they bring to the equation, the strengths that they bring along the way. But it is a recognition in order to make this thing work. Husband, primary responsibility, it's divine calling. You take the lead in Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. The wife comes alongside that and, and helps carry it out according to her gifts. Now, let us go ahead and say on the front end that this often gets distorted because that's what sin does. Sin always distorts. Sometimes this distortion ruins a harmony in the home. It'll distort the God-given roles of a husband and wife. Sometimes a husband may engage in, in being passive instead of taking on that responsibility. Or he may be harsh. He might uh, be insensitive or uncaring. A woman, because of the distortion of sin, sometimes might, might uh, lapse into manipulation or defiance. Or perhaps fall into kind of a victimhood mentality and helplessness. That was never God's design. That is a distortion of sin. So let me make sure I'm clear because, again, particularly when it talks about submission, this gets all knotted up and has been 
twisted and distorted through the years. So let me just spend a few moments talking about what submission in this context does not mean. All right? It does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says or does. <laughs> Aren't you glad? <laughs> hey, can, can we just be honest? We all mess up, right? We all blow it. We all have blind spots. We all, all miss it sometimes. We're all, you know, do some things well and some things not so well along the way. We need each other. And in no way, form, or fashion does submission mean I have to agree with everything my husband says or does. Because he's not always going to be right. And neither are you. But, but, you know, we just... I understand that. It doesn't mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar, all right? You bring all of you into that relationship, all of your strengths, all of your gifts, all of your talents, all that you are. Bring it fully yielded, fully submitted to Jesus Christ, but you bring all of you into that partnership and into that relationship. You don't have to check your brains at the door. It doesn't mean avoiding every effort to guide or influence your husband. He needs you to do that. He needs your strength. He needs your perspective. He needs your insight. He needs your wisdom. And you need his. If God has brought you together, it is not to compete with each other, but it is to complement and complete each other. It does, certainly does not mean putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. Our first love, our first allegiance is always to Jesus Christ. And they're hopefully, if a husband and wife are seeking Christ, they'll be seeking him together. But it is always about seeking his will. Number five, submission does not mean that a wife acts out of fear. Verse six talked about uh, not, not uh, operating out of fear, uh, not being uh, anything that is frightening. And, and in this context, can we just go ahead and, and say very clearly, there is never, 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 never a justification for abuse. Never. In the name of headships, of bitching, of whatever, Never, never, never is there. And that's, unfortunately, even some of that's made headlines in recent days. Let it be clear, there's nothing in the Scripture that would ever condone abuse. In fact, is through the years, what I've said, I've said it from in personal conversations, counseling, said it from this platform. If there is abuse going on in the home, you need to contact the authorities. You need to take pictures. And you need to get someplace safe. That doesn't mean that the relationship is automatically over. God's grace can redeem even a relationship that badly messed up. But for those that would teach, you have to stay there and put up with it. That's just dead wrong. It is just dead wrong. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in any of these New Testament passages that would ever condone or condemn a woman to having to stay in a relationship where she is being abused. Six, submission does not mean that a wife is less intelligent or competent. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right? 
I mean, come on. Many of us guys, we readily admit we married way over our head, right? Uh, I mean, said another way, many of us outpunted our coverage, right? I mean, it's just true. It, it is absolutely true. And we all bring different intelligences and different competencies to the relationships of our life. And so in no way does it say one is more intelligent than the other just because of their gender. No, 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 no nothing like that. We have different intelligences. We have different competencies. And we need to bring all of those to the relationships of our life. And as we've already said, submission certainly does not mean inequality in Christ. There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, that we all are equal in our need of and in our standing before Jesus Christ through faith in him. So you say, okay, Jeff, if all that is not what it means, well, what exactly does this look like? Well, let me just try to break it down, and we could go much, much, much deeper on lots of these, but uh, let me just uh, kind of hit the high points for the sake of our time this morning. What does it look like for the wife? What does it look like for the wife as Peter gives these instructions? Let's just think about some key words. He talks about behavior. He talks about behavior. He talks about the, the conduct of your life. Life. Even if you happen to be, if, if in Peter, as he's writing to some folks that maybe the, the wife has come to faith in Jesus Christ and her husband is not a believer and said that your conduct may be the most powerful message of all of the reality of Jesus Christ. So let your conduct be respectful. Let it be pure, that there is to be something about our behavior that reflects our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in the context of that marriage relationship, let your, let your behavior be pure. Let it be respectful, respectful toward God, respectful toward your spouse. And then he, and then he touches on appearance. He touches on appearance. And, and sometimes uh, if folks just kind of uh, grab parts of this, that, that they miss the message. He's talking about don't just focus on the external. It's not that the external doesn't matter. I mean, most of us appreciate uh, when we clean up and when other people clean up, right? <laughs> we do. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, you know, like to look, look our best. But what he's saying is don't let that be the major focus. Don't have a preoccupation with the external to the neglect of the internal. And can we be honest for a moment? In our culture, that's kind of hard, particularly for women, because the message that you get repeated over and over and over and over again is it's about your looks. It's about your size. Buy this product, have this thing, do this. And you can get bombarded by that and you can begin to equate your worth with your external appearance. You can begin to get so preoccupied with the external appearance that you miss the higher calling. And he's not saying it doesn't matter at all. He's saying it doesn't matter as much. It doesn't matter as much as focusing on your character, who you are as a person. He talks about the attitude of our life that we bring 
into the relationship. Uh, He talks about a a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, please don't mishear that. It's a gentle and quiet spirit. That that doesn't mean some of you are extroverts. And again, that's who God made you to be. Be who God made you to be. Bring all who you are into that relationship. But in that relationship with your husband, there's a a gentleness that you bring. There's There's a quiet spirit that finds its rest in Christ. Proverbs talks about strength Strength and dignity. Strength and dignity are her clothing. That there, there is this, this strength and dignity, regardless of personality type. Some are more extroverted, some more introverted, and all different uh, things across the spectrum. But there is a quiet, there's a strength, there's a dignity that they bring to the equation. And then there's how they respond in the relationship to their husband, their response. And, and he lifts up uh, uh, Sarah and, and Abraham and their, and their relationship there. And it was a relationship of, uh, of respect. He, she acknowledged his leadership. It, is, it was, a, it was a, not, again, a, a, a do nothing and you see sin distorting the roles even in Abraham and Sarah's relationship, but it was a response of respect to recognize the calling that a husband has to, to be the primary servant leader in the life of that family unit. Again, to Proverbs 31, talks about a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. And so the calling is to to bring to this relationship those character qualities, that strength, that dignity, that nobility that that responds to and and reflects Christ to her husband. And even if her husband's not a believer, he would see something of Jesus Christ in her. That's part of what Peter says it looks like for the wife. So what does it look like for the husband? And he kind of captures his advice in some quick phrases, because I guess maybe he knew he was writing to guys, so keep it, keep it quick and move it along there. Quick phrases as he, he, he kind of describes what this looks like, but they're, they're loaded with meaning. The first thing is, uh, the, the key word is sacrifice. Sacrifice. That when you think about uh, the New Testament teaching on the role of a husband, what does mutual submission look like for the husband? It looks like sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the calling. That's the calling. And now, guys, it's okay. You know, sometimes if you've been around church for a while, you can, you can roll that off your tongue, right? I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Well, your wife's glad that you know that, but she's going to see if you live that, right? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. And what Peter writes about here is not just what you talk about, but what you actually do. And the phrases kind of roll off there in verse 7. First, he says, live with your wife. 
live with your wife. And some of you are thinking, well, how easy is this? We have the same mailing address, right? Piece of cake. Check that one off. Well, slow down. Slow down here, right? It's more than just occupying the same uh, roof over your head, right? To live with your wife means to, to refuse to be passive when it comes to your home. To refuse to be passive, to engage fully there, to be really, really present in your home. Now, here's the challenge for us as guys. A lot of times, we can give so much. We can give so much energy, so much time, so much focus, so much mental and emotional and spiritual horsepower uh, to our work. We, We can sometimes even give a whole lot of that to a hobby. We can give a whole lot of that if we're, if we're in that kind of season where we've got children in our home. And many of us, we take that very seriously, and so we want to pour a lot into that. And sometimes if we're not careful, the only thing we bring to our spouse is leftovers. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm just trying to say, hey, this is God's high and holy calling for all of us. If you're a husband. Be present. And what that means is I'm going to refuse to be passive. And sometimes if you have laid it all out in the marketplace, you want to come home and you just, honestly, you want to be passive. I'm tired of making decisions. (laughs) I'm tired of handling responsibility. I'm tired of carrying the load. I'm tired of solving problems. But the calling is don't kick into passivity. Don't kick into passivity. Step up to servant leadership. You could even argue all the way back to Genesis 3 that it was the passivity of Adam that helped open up the world to sin. His absent leadership in a critical moment. Be present in your home. Refuse to be passive. Live with your wife. Secondly, he talks about know your wife, to live with her in an understanding way. It means knowing and meeting the unique needs of your wife. And that usually starts with a couple of radical thoughts. Watch and listen, right? Watch and listen. Observe and listen. Hey, what, what, is, it, what is it that is unique about my wife? What are the unique needs that she has as a servant leader? What are the unique needs that she has in this season of her life that I could help to meet? Maybe I just need to ask because, guys, most of us stink when it comes to kind of reading (laughs) between the lines sometimes, right? And ladies, don't be offended if he asks. Take that as a really good sign. You know, can I just coach a little bit here? Don't say, well, you ought to know. Maybe he should, but I guarantee you he don't. <laughs> I, okay. Can, can I just help? Can I help my brother out here? All right. And we don't. We're asking because we don't. Maybe we should, but we don't. Help us out there. Help us out, right? Knowing and meeting the unique needs of your wife. When I think about this, I think about a story I read years and years and years ago. It was written by a nurse, and she talked about this young couple, and the wife had had some sort of, uh, of condition and accident, and, and 
the surgeries were such that part of the result of the surgery, because the nerves were severed and stuff, is that, that her mouth was, was just crooked. It was just not right. I mean, it was evident. You could see it immediately. And she was just devastated. Because they told her, at least at that point, there was not anything they could do. And so, you know, it's like every time I look in the mirror, it's like, oh. And just kind of through tears, she's just saying to her husband, we can't even kiss anymore. And the nurse is in the room, and she's doing what she needed to do. And she said, just because of where she was, She just kind of had this incredible view of this sacred moment. When this young husband leans over the hospital bed and he lowers his face to his wife's and this nurse can see that he takes his lips and he twists them so that they match hers and they kiss. And he said, see, it still works. It still works. And when I read that, it's kind of like that. That's a picture of what it means to know and meet the unique needs of your wife. That as a servant leader, you will adjust. You will adjust to meet her where she is at. Hopefully together you can go to where God wants you to be. But you adjust. You live with your wife. You know. You live with her in an understanding way. And thirdly, honor. Honor your wife. It's also about showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It uh, doesn't mean weaker intellectually or anything. Peter's just making a quick observation here that generally speaking, I know it's not 100% true in every situation, generally speaking, men just by physiology have more muscle mass, tend to be stronger. So sometimes honoring may mean just literally lifting a heavier load, right? Uh, but honoring at its core is to honor or to ascribe value to somebody. To ascribe value, to say, I value you. I value you. I may value a lot of other things. I value my kids. I value my work. Maybe I value a hobby, all these things. I value you. And for her to to feel and sense that you value her. And again, one of those questions, what would make your wife feel honored? Because it's probably different. We're all different, and something that might make somebody else feel honored doesn't really do as much for this person here. And so part of living in an understanding way is understanding what would make her feel honored? What would make her feel valued? Maybe it's going back to something as basic as the five love languages or whatever it might be. But just to say, what would make my wife feel honored? And how can I engage in that? And it's very interesting as you read the last part of that verse, he connects the way that a husband relates to, her, to his wife with the, their effectiveness in prayer. So that your prayers may not be hindered. 
You are co-heirs in this grace of life, and how you relate to one another impacts your relationship with God. So what would make your wife feel honored? Now, at this point, you may be saying, hey, 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 all I wanted to do is to come kind of hear a relatively short message and get to a restaurant for Mother's Day, right? I mean, whoa, what is all this about, right? I mean, this is, this is hard. This is challenging. Maybe you're saying, that's not the way I was raised. I want to just tell you, this is not easy. That's why We must be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting that when Paul wrote about being filled with the Holy Spirit there in Ephesians 5, if you read that chapter, if you read that going into chapter 6 in context, he's talking about that and then he talks about life in the family. Isn't that interesting? Could it be that he knew that the place we would most need the continual filling of the Holy Spirit would be in the relationships in our very own home? Sometimes I think, well, I need to be filled with the Spirit for ministry. <laughs> well, that ministry begins in my very own home. And I have to continually be connected to Christ. So let me go back to the beginning. A family will never be what God called it to be apart from the individual members being what God has called them to be. My family, your family, whatever that looks like, whatever season it is, will never ever be what God has called it to be apart from the individual members being what God has called them to be. And the place to begin is with yourself. So as I try to tie this together, I want to share with you a story that Andy Stanley wrote and because it just kind of encapsulates some of these principles that I'm trying to talk about, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. When I was 26, Andy wrote, I flew to Washington, D.C. to be a groomsman in a friend's wedding. After the reception, the wedding party of 12 or so headed to an upscale bar in Georgetown. Being part of the wedding party, I tagged along. Most of us had met only two days earlier when we arrived for the festivities. Everybody ordered a drink. I ordered a cheeseburger, which of course attracted some unwanted attention. I'm not sure why. Most of them had spent most of the reception drinking. I had spent most of the reception eating. Why switch horses in midstream, right? (laughs) Eventually, the attractive girl next to me asked why I didn't drink. Her exact question was, so Andy, why don't you drink? Is it a religious thing? Since she'd been drinking quite a lot, half the table heard her and paused for the answer. Because we were at a wedding, I decided to give my best wedding answer. Well, I said, I figure if I don't drink, it'll give my future wife one less thing to worry about. Little did I know that she came from a home split by her father's abuse of alcohol. One question led to another. And the next thing I know, we were having a friendly debate about gender roles in marriage. By we, I mean everybody at my end of the table. By debate, I mean it was everybody at my end of the table versus me. Fortunately, I was sober, but they were louder. The turning point in the conversation came when the girl next to the girl who started all this said, and I quote, Andy, 
I heard a preacher say that a man had to be the head of the home because a two-headed home is like a two-headed monster. Is that what you believe, that the man is the head? Well, there's a verse somewhere in the New Testament where Jesus says, if you're arrested and put on trial for what you believe, God will give you the words to say. And while I hadn't been arrested, I certainly felt like I was on trial. So I shot up one of those, I need words to say prayers. And God was gracious. Both girls passed out and had to be taken outside for fresh air. <laughs> not really, not really, not really. All right. <laughs> Here's the gist of what I said. I heard myself saying. And this was directed at the girls who were asking the questions. Before I answer your question, imagine you're married to a man who genuinely believes you are the most fantastic person on the planet. He's crazy about you. You have no doubt that your happiness is his top priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. To use an old-fashioned term, he cherishes you. He's not afraid to make a decision. He values your opinions. He leads, but he listens. He's responsible. He's not argumentative. And you have no doubt that he would give his life for you if the need arose. You never worry about him being unfaithful. In fact, to quote an old Flamingo song, he only has eyes for you. As I was saying all this, the folks on the other end of the table tuned in and began to listen. I went on and on describing pretty much the perfect guy. The longer I talked, the more I sensed their resistance ebbing. When I finished, I paused and asked, would either of you have trouble following a man like that? The girl to my right blurted out, well, blank no, I want to meet that guy. <laughs> Everybody laughed. Without realizing it, she made my point. It's easy, perhaps natural, to submit to someone who genuinely has your best interest in mind. There's no fear. No reason to resist. Conversely, anyone who has your best interest in mind has an effect submitted to you. That person has chosen to leverage him or herself for your benefit, basically saying, you first. Standalone submission is dangerous. But mutual submission, that's different. A relationship characterized by mutual submission is the best of all possible relationships. It's a relationship worth preparing for. It's a relationship worth waiting for. It's a relationship worth living for. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, you know more about family than any of us will ever know. It was your idea. You designed it from the beginning. And you know more about how to make a family and any relationship work. It is absolute best. And so, Father, I just ask, Lord, would you teach us anew and afresh what it means to live in mutual submission? And, Lord, there, there are folks in all different seasons of life in this room right now. Some married, some single. Some with a house full of kids. Some haven't 
had any kids yet. Some kids are grown and gone. Father, while the challenges change through the seasons, the principles remain the same. And so, Father, would you teach us? Would you teach us how to live, how to love, how to relate out of the fullness of your Spirit according to your design? And I'm just going to invite you to take just a couple minutes to sit before the Father. And we like to ask that you.